chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, there's a pew Bible in front of you, and that is on page 865 in the pew Bibles. So Luke chapter 8 is where we will be having, um, where we'll be taking our text this morning, uh, verses 26 through 39 is the section of this chapter. It's a fairly large chapter. I think we're going to end up with about four or five sermons that we'll preach out of this one chapter. Uh, We've got one more that we'll finish out with this next week. The title of today's sermon is You Can Be Set Free. You Can Be Set Free. You remember, as we began the Gospel of Luke, there were three guiding principles that help aid our interpretation of the Gospel of Luke. And those three guiding principles are in the form of helping us understand what Luke is trying to communicate. Number one, he's trying to communicate who Jesus Christ is. The Gospels are there to help us identify who Christ is. Secondly, they are there to help us identify with Christ. They teach us how to follow Jesus. So there are passages that focus on his identity, Then there are passages that focus on our response to him as Lord. And then there are the other guiding principle. The third one is the fact that that, that Luke is showing us that we can trust in Jesus, that we can have confidence in him. So those are the three guiding principles. And I say that because we are entering into a a more in-depth section about demons And we don't want to lose sight of what Christ is doing. And we don't want to get so focused on the demons and demonology that we lose sight of what Luke's purpose is writing. So we're going to be looking at this section today. Life is very interesting to me. The experiences of life teach us a number of things. And, and I, don't, I want to be careful how I say this. Life doesn't validate Scripture. Scripture needs nothing to validate itself. It stands alone. But there are things in life that help us to understand things of Scripture in a very practical and real experiential way. For example, life experiences teach us the weakness of our humanity. Experiences teach us the weakness of our humanity. Humanity has overcome every single day by diseases. I pulled some statistics. These are the most recent statistics uh, related to the impact that disease has on humanity. So here are these statistics. 19 million people die every year in the world due to heart disease. 19 million people die every year due to heart disease. 10 million people die every year due to cancer. 4 million people die each year due to respiratory disease or respiratory diseases. There's multiple diseases in dealing with our respiratory system. 
Other leading causes of death, liver disease, kidney diseases, and then many, many others. So when the Bible shows us the miracle of Jesus able to heal man's diseases, the weaknesses of man, whether it be glaucoma, whether it be uh, a, a blood issue, whatever the issue might be, these miracles show us that God in Christ, that, that Jesus being God in the flesh, is able to overcome the weaknesses of our humanity on a physical level. So these miracles show us that Jesus is something other. He's better than medicine and science. And so he's showing us these things. But not only is our humanity subject to the power of diseases, but we are also subject to the power of natural disasters. This was another one of those statistics that just kind of shocked me a little bit as I begin to actually think about these numbers. 240,000 people die every year due to drowning. 240,000 people die due to drowning. That's, think about this. That's the entire population of DeSoto County, plus a few extra. To drowning. 111,000 people die each year due to fires. 47,000 people die each year due to cold and hot exposures. And 6,000 people die every year to other natural disasters. And again, what we see in Christ is not only him demonstrating miracles by healing people of their sicknesses and their illnesses and their diseases, but we are able to see that Jesus has authority over the natural elements of the world. He has authority over nature. We saw last week, Jesus woke from his sleep, walked to the bow of the ship, the bow of the ship, and told the hurricane that was coming hard at the boat. The waves were, uh, were rocking the boat way up into the air. They thought they were going to die. And Jesus simply said, shh, be quiet. And the winds and the waves obeyed. Jesus is something other than anything the world has ever known. Something interesting, though, as we see this contrast, we get focused on the storms of life, but not all storms are external. There are a lot of storms, and some of you today may be dealing with one of those storms. Some storms are internal. Some of you may feel like there is a raging storm, a hurricane, an earthquake going off inside of you because there are storms that rain inwardly. And this is what we see in our story today. Jesus and the disciples had just come through this amazing storm. The disciples witnessed this amazing thing of Christ. They arrived there on the shores of Gadara. And there was a welcoming committee. It was a host of demons who came and greeted Jesus the moment he reached the shore. Look at what it says in our text, Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 26. The Bible says, Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, 
This is the, the land of Gadara, which is opposite of Galilee. And when Jesus had stepped on, out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes. And he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and he fell down before him. And he said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. I I, I think it's interesting, don't you? Moments before this, there was a storm raging. Jesus steps out and hushes the storm, and the disciples say, who is this that even the winds and waves obey him? And a few minutes later, a little while later, he steps out on the shores, and the demons say, we know who you are, Jesus, son of the most high God. Shows us something about demons, doesn't it? They know exactly who he is. The Bible tells us that the demons believe and even tremble. They not only know him, but they are terrified of him. As we approach this text, we need to be careful about how we think about demons. Some people become so obsessed with the topic of demons that eventually they see demons in everything and before long, demons made me do it. we have to be very careful about how we look at demons. There are extremes on both ends. Growing up in the late 70s and in the 80s, I remember there was a fascination with demonology. Christian literature used to send out uh, these magazines and they would have pictures of the pentagram and they would have all these symbols and witchcraft and, and they would use all of this imagery to create a fascination around demonology. In fact, many churches would designate times. They they got so into this that they began to see demons and inanimate objects and and people would have these services. Churches would have services and some of you probably been to some of these where they would have burning services at the church and you could bring possessions from your house and cast them into the fire as a way of ridding the evil from your home. And again, let, let me say this, there are some things that probably need to exit our homes. But the idea that we can exercise demons by burning them out of inanimate objects, the idea that we can rid our lives of evil in this way is something that we do not get from the text. These are forms of maybe just getting rid of some things, but sometimes we go to certain extremes. I read a story this week about a particular church group God was doing some amazing things in this particular church's life. And it was a small church, but they were experiencing somewhat of a a revival and awakening within their church. And God was just doing some amazing things. And one night they were having this prayer meeting and they had a giant chandelier, kind of like what we've got in the front entrance. And it began to flicker. And somebody said, I believe demons are in the light fixture. And so they all 
begin to get, they, they had all become fascinated with this topic of demons. And so they, they ended up taking the chandelier down and they dismantled it. And as many people as were there in the church, they gave each one a piece and they drove five miles away from the building and buried it to get rid of the demons. Same church, a little while later, again having meeting and they started identifying objects in their home like a chest of drawers or different things that they thought were cursed with demons and they would hack it up and burn it. This is a very unhealthy way of thinking about demons. So when we get so obsessed, we have to be careful how we begin to think about demons. The other extreme is just dismissing demons altogether and just acting as if demons don't exist. That there is no activity of demons. And clearly we can know that that's not true because we see the biblical text and we can see that there are demons and that there are activities of demons. But something I think that is worthy of note, it seems that there are in some situations, some situations that certain demon activity is more aggressive while other demon activity is very passive or less aggressive or maybe even less noticeable. I've visited uh, on a number of occasions Africa, been to India, and I have to say that there is a certain level of presence of demon activity that is more aggressive in those countries than I have experienced here. And this isn't to say there are, there's no demon activity here at all, that's just to say that it's different. When I was in Africa, I traveled to a regional king's home and it was the, the king of Ndu and we went into his home and when we entered into the entrance of his palace or his, his, his home there, they had these giant pillars made up of human bones and skulls. And it was, as a, it was to serve as a protection against certain evil demons to show that you're, you're not welcome here. And so they begin to tell me the story of, of, of some of the practices that they did and some of the things that they did in order to deal with demons and evil spirits and unclean spirits as the scripture identifies these. Uh, whenever I would preach there, I went to preach at a, at a, uh, at a rally where we had some 9,000 people show up at this soccer field. And as I was getting ready to walk up on the stage and, and preach, witch doctors were lined up that I had to walk past and they were casting spells and, and, and hissing and throwing th- objects, certain uh, cursed objects toward me to curse me before I preached. And so we, we saw certain things that uh, were a little bit more identifiable with what we see in the text that we don't really see here as obvious. You see here in America, I think that it's still as rampant, maybe perhaps at a different level, but we see greed. We see the struggle of power. We see sexual immorality. And I want to be very careful here to say every single thing that we see by way of sin is in the form of a demon. Because James makes it very clear that by and large, most of the sins that we commit, we commit by our own flesh. Let let me just say this. There is no excuse. You'll never be able to make the excuse, a demon made me do it. You can't use that. But your flesh, typically when you sin, it's because you've given in to the appetites of your flesh. 
and you've allowed yourself to sin. And so we have to just be careful. Uh, and, and, and again, the, the other thing I want to mention here is that um, when we talk about demon possession, if you are a child of God, I want you to hear me, a child of God cannot be possessed by a demon. Let me say that again. A child of God cannot be possessed by a demon. Here's why. Who possesses you now? The Holy Spirit does. He will not share his house. <laughs> he will not share his temple. Your body is his house. I believe Christians can be influenced by demons and by demon activity. The Bible says, do not give place to the devil. I think there are certain demonic things that we can become fascinated with or give place uh, to. We can be uh, stimulated in some way to, uh, to be oppressed, I guess, in a way by demons, but we cannot be possessed. All right, so let's, uh, let's get back into our text here and let's look at, at, at a few things about demons. And the first thing I want to point out is the desire that demons have to torment and terrorize humanity. Look at what it says in 8, 27 and 29. <clears throat> it says, for a long time, he had, talking about this demon-possessed man, he had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. Over in verse 29, uh, the part B, it says, for many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds <clears throat> and be driven by the demons into the, des the desert. Now I want you to get a mental picture of how the Bible describes this man. First of all, we see a man who is naked. He has no clothes on. Secondly, we see a man who does not live in a house. He lives in a graveyard. Very fitting for an unclean spirit. He lives in a graveyard among the tombs. Something else we see is that people would bind him with chains. They would try to control him. They would put shackles around his wrists, probably shackles around his ankles. But perhaps through some supernatural strength, through the demons giving him strength, he would be able to snap the chains and break free. He couldn't be bound by any human uh, agency or any human ability. He was completely possessed by demons. Mark tells us in Mark 5, 5, that night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So you can see this naked individual who probably has shackles around his wrist with pieces of chain hanging from them. And he's running around the mountains and running through the tombs, screaming and hollering and taking stones and cutting himself and just absolutely a poor, pathetic soul. It's hard to imagine such a sight. As I begin to get this imagery in my head this week, I, I couldn't help but notice what it says in the text that he had been this way for a long time. That means that there must have been moments that were lucid. He, he must have had lucid moments where he could eat where he would sleep. Otherwise, his body wouldn't have been able to continue to function. I can only imagine what it would be like in those lucid moments. 
when he's in his right mind and he's looking at his shackles, he's looking at his body, he sees the lacerations, he remembers the relationships that he used to have, he remembers his family, he remembers he's from the city, he remembers what it was like to be able to walk into the public square and people not run from him. I can see him going down close to the water. He was near water, obviously. We see this with the pigs. See him looking at his reflection. What has become of me? You can't help but feel sorry for this individual. Night and day, he's tormented by these demons. It brings the question, why do demons torment people? I think another way to frame the question is, why do demons hate people? Why do they want to terrorize people? And let me give you an answer. Because humanity is created in the image of God. That's your answer. Humanity is created. You are created in the image of God. That means when God created you, there was an intention that you would look like him. And so we see The demons are angry, they hate God, and they hate anything that looks like his image. I believe this is one of the reasons we see marriages under attack the way that it's being attacked, not just today, but throughout history. Marriages have been under attack. Do you know why marriages are under attack? Because marriages were created in the image of God. I don't know if you ever thought about this. God said, let's make man. They created man. And God said, it's not good. Remember what he said in Genesis. Let us make man in our image. Plural. God speaking within the Trinity of the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Let us make man in our image. He created man and then he created a a helpmate. He created woman. And he said, be fruitful and multiply. What do you see in all of that? You see the aspect of the Trinity of God. You see a representative, something that looks like God. Marriages are under attack. Morality is under attack because morality is intended to glorify God. Your sexuality, uh, how you were created, uh, that God created you male and female is to give glory to God. Your sexual morality, your ethical morality, all your, the, the morality, the, the sense of knowing good and wrong comes from God because we are created in the image of God. Theology is under attack because God intends for us to know who he is in truth. God doesn't want you to subjectively think about him. He don't want you to come up with imagining ways about God and just thinking of God in the terms of imagination. No, he's given us truth. He's given us his revealed word so that we can know who God is based on truth. And the reason that there are false teachers and, and false, doctor, uh, false uh, doctrine is because of the activity of Satan who is wanting to distort the truth of God. He wants you to think wrongly about God. And that's the reason he puts even in his churches, even as pastors, many false preachers. There's a distortion of theology and spirituality. The Bible says we're to worship God in spirit and in truth. And even our our own understanding of spirituality is impacted. 
by the activity of Satan and demons. And so we see all of these things are under attack because of the Imago Dei, the image of God. Werner Forster says this, he's a New Testament scholar. He says, in most of the stories of possession, what is at issue is not merely sickness, but a destruction and a distortion of the divine likeness of man according to creation. The center of personality, the volitional and active ego is inspired by alien powers which seek to ruin man. Let me say this. While demons have power and they are very strong and they influence greatly and many people are impacted by the activity of demons by Satan, Let us not forget that this story shows us that no matter how powerful demons are, Jesus Christ is stronger than demons. He is stronger than a legion of demons. He is stronger than the entire forces of hell. He is uh, equal to no one. He is above, he is completely other. He is above all human diseases. He is above natural disasters and he is above all spiritual forces. This is what we see. Notice how the demons respond to him. Look in verse 28. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. (laughs) You can see this host of demons, a a legion Uh, We're going to get into that in a minute, but you can see this legion of demons falling down and begging at the feet of Jesus not to torment them. Imagine the scene, if you would. Remember, they just stepped off the boat. They just had this experience with Jesus who had stilled the storm. And now here they see this naked man with cuts all over him, shackles and broken chains hanging off of him. And he runs falling down at the feet of Jesus, acknowledging that he is the son of God and begging him not to torment them. By their own confession, by the demon's own confession, what they were saying is that they have no power over Jesus. There may be influences in your life stronger than you, but there is absolutely no influence in your life that's stronger than Jesus. There is nothing that you're dealing with. There's a lot you're dealing with that's stronger than you. We just sang a song a while ago that said, I can do none of this in my power. But there's nothing too strong for Jesus. Nothing greater than him. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him and they begged him not to command them to depart, to depart into the abyss. Uh, A legion is a reference, even though it was a name here, it was personified, it was a reference to a Roman cohort of soldiers and a legion consisted of 6,000 foot soldiers. Now, The scripture doesn't make it clear. We don't know if this is precise. We don't have a clue if there were actually 6,000 demons in this man. I would argue and say there were at least 2,000 because of the 2,000 pigs. But there were a lot. 
And that's the point here, that here was this host of, Je- this host of demons that occupied this, this human uh, body, and here Jesus is, is looking down, and this naked, cut up, shackled and chains man was standing there, and peering back into the eyes of Jesus were a host of demons, begging, pleading with him. Folks, this is a demonstration of authority. This is to show the power of who God is. And they are begging him not to bind them to hell. So they begged for another option. Now, the Bible teaches us a little bit about this. We see it over in uh, the, the book of Peter. We see it in Jude, that there are angels, fallen, a, danger, a demon is a fallen angel, that there are demons who are being kept in chains of gloomy darkness. Even right now as we speak, there are some who have no roaming power. They have been confined to chains of gloomy darkness. Perhaps this is what they were saying. Do not bid us to go there. We want our freedom. They want to occupy a body. And so here's what happens in verse 32. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Brothers and sisters, you need to get this. Jesus Christ is Lord. When Jesus says to disease... Get up and leave, disease has to get up and leave. When Jesus says to a storm, be still, be quiet, the storm has to listen to his word. And when Jesus says to demons, be gone, and allows them to enter the pigs, they have to do exactly what he says. They are subject to his word. I don't know if you're picking up the connection here, but when you read the word of God, you are reading the word of God. The word of God that has the power to create all things out of nothing. The word of God who has the power to do all that we're seeing Jesus Christ do. And then the demons, they came out of the man, they entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down into the steep bank, into the lake, and drowned. Again, we see this scene where you got 2,000 pigs who were there in this herd, and the demons go out, and frantically, the pigs know something has changed in their life, and they run down, and are you listening? Bad dad joke, they committed suicide. (laughs) But they ran down and even, get the irony, even an unclean pig didn't want an unclean spirit. They ran down and they drowned there in the lake. We don't know why Jesus allowed this. I, I don't even want to sit here and surmise I'll say one thing, that perhaps 
It was an evil business that had been taking place. The Jews perhaps had traveled over into the Gentile territory. They were forbidden to eat pork. And so they decided to capitalize on it by going to another place. Perhaps Jesus was showing them that they had an illicit uh, market and that he was judging the people of Gadara, perhaps the Jews there of Gadara, by doing this, by hurting their economy. I don't know. Perhaps there was something of that. But we do see the results of it. It says here in verse 34 through 36, when the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and they told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened. So people are traveling now. They hear this amazing event uh, that had just taken place and they came to Jesus and they found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Jumping over to verse 38, it says, the man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. You know, whenever... You read this, when I read this, and many other people, when they read this story, a lot of emphasis is placed on the demons, a lot of emphasis is placed on the pigs, but Luke puts the emphasis where it should be, and that's on what just happened in this man's life by the hand of God. God did something in this man's life, and Luke shows us that this was a man who had been truly rescued by God and by his power. You remember for a long time he was naked. He was living among the dead, out of his mind, running around in tombs in the hillside, screaming night and day, a terror to people, a terror to himself. But now, how do we see him? God solved his naked problem. He put clothes on. And now he's sitting there clothed and in his right mind, lucid, with understanding But more than anything, where is he sitting? Proximity and position means a lot. Where is he sitting? He is sitting at the feet of Jesus. This shows us something about this man's new state of being. He is in love with Christ. He is in love with Jesus. Just hours before this, Jesus is calming a life-threatening hurricane and now Jesus has calmed the storm within this man's soul. Others tried to shackle this man. Many people would run from him when he would come out of the tombs chasing them. They had given up on him, but Jesus had not given up on him and Jesus healed him, delivered him, and restored him. You see, Jesus is not just some man who has the ability to cure diseases. He's not just some man who has the ability to speak to storms and they obey him. Jesus has the power to get rid of evil in the life of individuals. He has the power to get rid of the storm that is plaguing us all. And when Jesus is Lord and you're truly delivered from your sin, you want to be with Jesus, plain and simple. You want to be near him. You want to be with him because you love Jesus. Notice this. Jesus is about to leave. The man begs to go with him. He just wants to be with Jesus. And this is what Jesus tells him in verse 38. 
The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. And Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Another product of salvation is not only do you love Jesus, you want to obey him. He wanted to go with him. He's like, man, you just rescued me. I want to go with you. But the moment Jesus says, no, I want you to stay. And I want you to tell everybody all of the things that God has done for you. He does it immediately. He acts out of love and obedience, knowing this truth. One day I'll be with my Jesus. One day I'll be with him forever. But while I'm here, I'm going to go tell all people what Jesus did for me. It says here in verse 35 to 37, the people went out to see what had happened and they came to Jesus and they found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. I want you to put it, notice the emphasis I'm placing on they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them for they were seized with great fear. So he got in the boat and he returned. There are two types of fear in the Bible. There's a healthy fear that comes from being in awe of God. It's the fear of knowing who God is. It's the fear of knowing that he's Lord. The fear of knowing of the power and the capability that God has. This is the fear that produces love and respect for our king. This is a good fear. It's a positive fear. But then there's another fear. It's a negative fear. And it's a fear that comes from an attitude of defiance. It is a fear of knowing that God requires something to change in my life and I don't want to change. It is the fear of knowing that God will expect me to live for him and I don't want to live for him. This demon-possessed man had, been, had, had terrorized these people. He was a, an, an infliction upon that community. And when they come and find him, they find him in his right mind. They find him clothed. They find him, though, at the feet of Jesus, and this bothers them. Because they were able to make the connection that this man had done something that brought change in this man's life, and we don't want any part of that. You had thought they would have rejoiced. You would have thought that they would have been excited. Hey, we don't have to be afraid to go that way anymore. We don't have to be afraid to go bury one of our dead in the graveyard and wonder if he's going to come out of the tombs after us. But no, they are seized with fear from an attitude of defiance. They see this man has changed, been changed by God, and they do not want it. And so what do they do? They tell Jesus, get out of our country. We do not want you. And what does Jesus do? And so he got into the boat and left. He got into the boat and returned. I didn't put this in my notes, but I'll add it here. He left, but the gospel stayed. <laughs> He left, but the gospel stayed. And that was the hope that was for the, the country of Gadara. Let me close with these thoughts this morning. There are a lot of people who reject Jesus because they do not want God to disrupt their lives. They know that if they were to embrace Jesus, 
that their life must change. They know that if they embrace Jesus, that their lives would be different. And they don't want to change. They know that God will require something from them. And that is true. God will require something from you. But before you look at the cost, we need to see the payment. We need to see something that God has done because you see, and I want to speak to those of you this morning who may not be a follower of Christ. You're a sinner. You are, plain and simple. You are a sinful person. Whether it be the intent of your heart, whether it be the attitude that you possess, whether it be the sin of lust or the sin that's within your mind or even the actions and the deeds that you commit that you think nobody knows about. God knows. And you are a sinner. In fact, I would say this. You're really no different than the demon-possessed man. Maybe you don't look like this man. Maybe you're wearing clothes. But let me just say this to you. Your nakedness is exposed before God. God knows your sins. God knows everything you have done. He knows the lies that you tell. He knows the activities that you engage in because there is absolutely nothing that is hidden from God. You may think that you are of a sane mind, but your thoughts are known by God. God knows the intentions of your mind. He knows the imaginations in your mind. He knows the lustful thinking that's within your mind. And he can see the oppression in your life. He can see your struggles of feelings with inadequacy. He can see the struggle that you have with depression that you try to hide from others. He can see the struggle that you have with self-worth and value, the feelings that no one cares about me. He can even see the thoughts of suicide that are in your mind. When you just want to end it all and be done because of the storm that's raging in your life. He can see when you close your eyes or those moments when you just want to close your eyes and never wake up. God can see the shackles and the chains that hang on you, that keep you weighted down. He can see the burdens that you're carrying that nobody else can see. See, you can carry regret, fear, and doubt, and nobody else will know it, but God knows it. You carry the pain of bad choices, God knows it. And if your heart is heavy right now, you need to know that Jesus endured the storm of judgment so that you could be forgiven of your sins. You need to know that Jesus Christ paid a payment. He made the payment. You you focus on the cost all you want. But folks, I'm telling you, Jesus Christ made the payment. And by His blood, by His stripes, you can be healed. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, you can find salvation and you can truly be delivered from your shame and your guilt and your sin because all of that was placed upon Jesus as He hung on that cross and as He died as a penalty and as a payment for the sins of those who will believe in Him. So if you would today believe in Him, trust in Him, you can be set free. You can be delivered. 
And, and those of you who may, maybe you know you're saved, but you're still struggling with issues and influences that are in your life, I'm telling you right now, the Word of God has the power to strengthen you and to help you by the power of God be free. God intended for you to live free, to live in the freedom of His love and His grace, loving Him and trusting Him and following Him every single day of your life. Let me pray for us. Father, as we think about this horrific situation with this man, a scene that is so vivid, the imagery of the text, Lord, just shows us just the depths of how ravaged this man's life was. And yet it's a picture that shows us, particularly those who are without Christ, a picture of what they look like without you. Lord, we may cover it up and try to paint a different picture, but the reality is still the same. We are sinners and we need to be set free. And Father, I pray that you would help those this morning who may be in this service, maybe a young boy, a young girl, and maybe they've been struggling with the thought of being saved. They, don't, they, they know there's something in their life. There's a burden over their sin. They, they want to be set free. They want to be forgiven. Lord, I pray that right now, whether a young boy, young girl, young man, young woman, an older man, an older woman, I pray, Lord, if that's within their heart today, that you would show them that it's only in Jesus Christ that they can be set free. God, minister to us by your word this morning and help us to see that you are greater than all things. You are bigger than all of our problems. You are bigger than any disease. You are bigger than any natural catastrophe. You are bigger than any sin. God, help us to see your power. And I pray these things that you get glory for it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.